The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we've been working through Mark a chapter at a time. There's 16 Sundays between the beginning of the year and 16 Sundays between the beginning of the year and Easter. So we'll be ending Mark, Mark 16 on uh, Easter. So that'll be a lot of fun to to be uh, covering that. And we've been covering the idea that Jesus is a man worth following. He's a man that you can serve. He's a king. He's a, he's a man you can follow, he's a king you can serve, and he's a God you can worship. And we've been looking at Mark to see him shown to us there. In the past couple of weeks we saw that you know, Jesus kind of got some popularity going on. He had kind of a, kind of a, a deal going on because if you show up and you start healing people and like, uh, people get, start being raised from the dead and you know, they're sick and they can't, they're blind and they can't walk and the next thing you know they can see and they can walk and they, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. You're going to get a big crowd. You're going to get a lot of popularity and people are following Jesus. They're pressing in on him all the time. They're like, like, uh, like the grateful dad. He's got this following all around like the Sea of Galilee, just pressing in on him, hearing what he has to say, seeing wanting him to touch him, wanting to bring their sick relatives to him. He's got a big following going on. And then we saw a kind of turn happen a couple of weeks ago where, because everybody thought like, okay, because Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. And so everybody thought like Jesus has come, he, maybe he's the Messiah. And what their idea of the Messiah was, he was the one that was going to come and save Israel. And what saving Israel meant is he's going to come and he's going to overthrow the government, the Roman government. He's going to sit on this throne and he's going to like rule and reign in a new kingdom in Israel. And sometimes, quite honestly, uh, we in America, we try to fight that same fight. Like, we, we kind of missed the big idea that Jesus came to do, that he came to, to start an upside-down kingdom, which is what we're going to be looking at today. And sometimes we think that, like, the, the thing that's going to happen is, like, we get so, so, uh, so distracted by uh, who's sitting in the White House and who's sitting in the Supreme Court building and what laws are being passed and what laws are not being passed. We, we get all caught up in that because we think somehow, like, God's setting up his kingdom in Washington, D.C., but that's not where his kingdom is, is it? So Jesus takes a turn from them thinking that he's going to sit on a throne and be in control. And he takes a turn and he says, all right, here's what's going to happen, guys. Uh, I'm not going to go sit on a throne to establish my kingdom. I'm going to go hang on a cross. I'm going to go and suffer and die in order to begin my kingdom. And then he's like super Debbie Downer. He would be a terrible, terrible church planner. Because as soon as he gets a sort of a big following and everybody's packing, everybody can't wait to come in. And, you know, they're not slipping in late. They're coming in early. They're packing the chairs. You know, Doxy Kids is full. There's too many, too many babies in the nursery. They ran out of pagers. The parking lot's full. Everything's cranking. And right when it's kind of cranking, he takes a, he takes a left turn that they're not expecting. And then not only does he say that he's going to go suffer and die, but he says, and here's the truth. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to follow me down that same path. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross, deny yourself, come follow me. Because the way to follow me is the way through the cross. He would have been a terrible, terrible church planter. He, did, he always went the opposite way that we expect him to go. He always said the opposite thing that his disciples expected him to say. He always said the thing, right when you get the kind of crowd going, the momentum going, he goes the other way. 
it's so, so frustrating. Even as I read it, I'm trying to read it as one of the perspective of one of the disciples. And I'm like, I get so irritated with him. Like, Jesus, you got something going on. And then you say something crazy that throws everybody off. Last week we saw how Jesus came and he said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and suffer to follow me. And the question was, why would we want to do that? Right? I mean, like, what if I stood up and said, all right, if you guys, and this is kind of what planting a church is like in the, in the beginning, even in this point of the time, like, hey, if you guys want to be a part of a church plant, it's going to be awkwardly small oftentimes, you're going to come in, the child care may not be, you know, exactly what you're looking for, the music may not be what you're looking for, we don't have lights and lasers, and nobody's like, no valet service outside parking your car, you're probably going to have to come, and after you, like, worship with us, and you're probably going to have to tear down some chairs, or take some speakers outside, it's not the most exciting thing, and, and it's, why, the question is, why would I want to do that? answered we saw it came to us last week when Jesus takes three of its disciples up on this on this mountain to pray like he normally did but that day something different happened and he pulled back the veil of who he was and they saw him for a moment a glimpse in his glory we talked about how you know how the Olympians will train hours and hours day after day year after year in order to get one shot at glory because the one little taste of glory is worth it all you saw some of those events of the winter olympics a couple of weeks ago like they some of them last literally a few seconds and it's over a, a skier comes down the slope he takes a jump he he trips over himself or he falls and it's it's done a skater it's his, it's his moment. He's been training for years and years and years. He does one of those triple axle things or quadruple dilios, and he falls on the way down, and it's done. Years and years of training is over, but they're willing to do it for just a taste of glory. And whenever you taste him, when you see him for just a moment for who he really is, all of a sudden it makes it worth it. But then this week, Again, Jesus is maddening in Mark chapter 10. If you turn to verse 17, Jesus is walking along. We talked about how he's really on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross at this point. Jesus is on his way to Easter. Some of us, we feel like Easter will never come. Uh, I know I said this a few weeks ago, but if you live in Myrtle Beach, like uh, you're either either from the south or probably more more likely from the north, and so you came here not to have a winter, but maybe like a little like at Christmas we get a little bit nostalgic, and so we wanted to be a little bit cold. Like you want to have to wear a, a coat and a scarf, and you know wear that nice Christmas sweater or whatever at Christmas time, and uh, so you want to be a little chilly. But as soon as Christmas is over, if you're in Myrtle Beach, you're like, all right, we're done. It you can roll it back up, and this is crazy like we're in March it's been cold we have to wear scarves and coats and like I'm like I am I am done with this you can this is this is stupid and silly you can roll all this up I am I am I am done I have no idea why I was telling you that but uh, look at verse 17 of Mark chapter 10 and as he as Jesus was sitting out on his journey a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Uh, he set it up on a tee for Jesus, right? I mean, this is like a preacher, a pastor's dream to have somebody run up to you and ask you this question. And not only did somebody come up and ask me this question, but it was the trifecta. Right, so there's a, a particular uh, there's a particular demographic of people that the church in history has not been very good at reaching. Generally, um, the church is and this, if you if you fall in this demographic, this is not a slight to you. I'm just telling you what the church kind of has skewed to in the past. The church is generally a K love demographic. I, I saw the the K love demographics one time, like their profile of who listens to K love, and it's a woman in her mid 40s. And that's kind of generally, when you go to a church, that's kind of who's there, right? Uh, women, mostly. I think, I think nationwide, the church in America is 60% women. No knock women. I'm just letting you know, like, this is kind of the demographic. The church is 60% women nationwide. Generally, a little bit older. You guys ever walk into most churches? Uh, unless it's the one that has the laser lights and stuff, and the pastor coming in on a zip line. You usually walk into church, and if you if you sit up, up top and you look over, it's like uh, it's like gray carpeting down there. You know what I'm saying? Like you see all the, the fluffy gray heads down there. And we look, listen, we want fluffy gray heads here. We want them here because they have a lot of wisdom and experience. But that's you. The church just falls out of bed and reaches those people. Uh, we're not very good at reaching young men in particular. In fact, young men in America are an unreached people group. <laughs> if you look at the stats of men in their 20s and 30s who are going to church, uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like Europe, it's like parts of Asia numbers. You, a, a guy in his 20s and 30s is not, in America is not likely to be at church. And so this is a young man that, that comes up to Jesus and then, number two that he is going for it, he is a rich young man. It tells us in other accounts of this, he's a, he's a rich young man. So it's like, whoa, right? Because, you know, offering plates, hello, like it's really, you know, we like to add on new parts to the church and, you know, get some new equipment and somebody comes in who's... who's Making bank, man, we really like those guys to come in. So he's young, he's a man, and he's rich. And then it also tells us in other accounts that he is a ruler. So he's an influential man. So he's rich, young, and influential. And he runs up to Jesus and he asks him. He puts it right on the tee for him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A lot of the commentaries I read about this said that the really interesting thing about this story is if you grew up in church and you know the story of the rich young ruler, then you kind of know how this ends already. But uh, So we kind of say, oh, the rich young ruler, he liked his possessions more than Jesus. But uh, the, the, the thing is that he asked the right question. He's the only person in this area that asked Jesus the, the heart of the question. Everybody else is asking, Jesus, whenever you sit on the throne, what is it going to be like? Uh, can, I be, can I sit on your right hand or your left hand? There's a discussion elsewhere in this chapter about that. Can I be in charge of like the, the, the state department? Or can I, you know, whatever the, everybody's trying to, to posture for power whenever Jesus sits on his throne. But this man, he sees what Jesus is up to and he runs up to Jesus and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asked him the right question. So it's teed up right for him, right? I mean, this is a dream. Jesus just has to knock him in. I don't play golf. Uh, I'm one of the uh, five guys in Myrtle Beach that do not play golf um, or surf. Uh, I do neither of those, but uh, I, 
I have played mini golf before, and it is a really nice, like whenever the, the, the ball's right there, I mean, it's irritating when it doesn't go in the hole, and it's right beside the, the mushroom and the dragon, but it's right, it's right there, and all you have to do is just knock it in. Man, it's just right up on the tee for you. And that's what this man came to do. He comes up to Jesus, and it is sitting right there. He just has to nudge it into the cup. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, oh, he never answers like we want him to answer. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Which would be a very frustrating answer, wouldn't it? Why do you call me good? And I think we're going to see why Jesus says that in a minute. But let's, uh, we'll, we'll just keep on moving. I don't know this bottle is just def- defaulted. <laughs> Um, And then Jesus said to him, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Which, by the way, is a pretty sterling reputation, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine being able to say that? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, at this time, like, you guys may be familiar with the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, you know, if you even looked at a woman lustfully that you've committed adultery in your heart, you know, if if you've uh, you've gotten angry or mad with somebody, if you've had a murderous thought, then you're a murderer yourself. But they didn't have that concept at this time. They just said, you know, if you didn't murder anybody, you're not a murderer. If you didn't commit adultery, you're not an adulterer. So he said, like, all these things I have kept from a a very good, I'm a good guy. Not only am I a rich, young, influential, guy, but I'm a good guy. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say you're not good. He doesn't say, no, that's not true. I know that, you know, I saw you six months ago and, you know, the lady gave you uh, $11 in change and she's only supposed to give you $1 in change and you didn't say anything back to her or, you know, uh, or you, uh, uh, you got to, you know, Somebody knocked on the door and you you hid in, in the bathroom or somebody called on the phone and you told your wife to tell them like you weren't home or, or tell like you were in the shower and you like you ran real fast and jumped in the shower. You're so fully clothed. Anybody ever done that before? Like tell them I'm in the shower and in order to keep it kind of true and only kind of a white lie, you go jump in the shower fully clothed. It's, it's kind of true or he's, you know, maybe you haven't done that before. Uh, uh, he's, in, he, he's, in, he's in bed and so you, you go and jump in bed. Uh, maybe not. But uh, he's never done any of that stuff. He said, I've been that way from, the, from my youth, from the very beginning. He was a good guy. And Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, it says he loved him. See, Jesus, Jesus knew what this guy was going to respond, how he was going to respond. It doesn't end really well coming up. Spoiler alert. But it says that he loved him still. And he said to him, you like one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That was a pretty big ask. 
and it's not what you expect. This young man comes to Jesus, asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, you got to go sell all that you have. So what's Jesus saying here? It's kind of confusing, isn't it? I mean, is he saying that you can't own possessions? Or is it saying you can't own much possessions? You can have a little bit, but you can't have a lot. But how much is too much, right? Because like a lot in America or a little bit in America is different than other places. I've been to India two times. I tell you, our a little bit is a lot is a lot different than their little bit and their lot there. So how much is too much? Can I make X amount of money? Can I live in an X size house? Can I drive this car? But when I cross this, it's gone too far. How do I determine? Is that what he's talking about? Or we see some people say, well, no, he knew that this guy loved money, and so he was just speaking to this guy, so it doesn't really have anything to do with you or me. But is that true? He said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, the, uh, the point of keeping the commandments, the point of, of being good, of making the right choices, that God, the commands that God gave the Israelites, the point wasn't for them to be better people. The point was to show them their need for God. Have you ever asked God, like, what do you want from me? <laughs> Have you ever asked him, what, what, do you, what do you want from me? Maybe in a moment where things are not really going well for you and you're thinking like, what do you want from me? See, we're always interested about what we're bringing to the table with God. When, when Jesus asked this man, uh, whenever he came up and he, he asked Jesus the question, what must I do? And Jesus responded, well, you know the commandments, you, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this, or don't do that, don't do that, do that. And this guy said, I've done all that. He's saying, I've already brought all that to the table. He came to Jesus asking the right question, but his motivation was, was totally different. He was, saying, he was saying, what else must I do? What else do I have to bring to the table? I've, I've, I've been a good guy all my life. I've kept the commands that you gave me. I keep bringing that to the table. What else do you want from me to bring to the table? And have you ever asked God that same question? Maybe things are going bad for you. You say, what else do I need to bring to the table? Or maybe you don't feel like I'm, I'm living up to the kind of Christian life that I'm supposed to be living. And you ask God in a moment, like, God, what else do you want? want from me? Do you want me to change jobs? Do you want me to move to Africa? Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? Do you want me to give more? Do you want me to pray more? Do you want me to read more? What else do you want me to bring to the table for you? In order to, we have this sort of like bartering idea with God. Now I bring to the table and I get something back from him. I give you X amount of devotion and then you give me provision back. Or I give you X amount of devotion and you give me uh, good feelings back. I feel good about myself. I give you the, this, I bring you this amount of devotion and you give me this assurance that I'm, when I die, I'm going to be in heaven. It's not going to be like terrible for me. It's going to be good for me. I bring this to the table and you give this back to me. The problem is in all the scenarios that we're coming with our hands full to God. We're coming to him, bringing him an offering, saying, here, this is what I'm bringing to the table. I'm bringing you my possessions. I'm bringing you my time. I'm bringing you my devotion. I'm bringing you my energy. I'm bringing you myself. 
But that's not what God asked for. And so his response to the man, even though he loved him, was to say, you have to go sell all that you have. What he's saying was, you've always come with your hands full to me. I want you to come with your hands empty. Because only empty hands can be filled. Do you come with God with a bartering idea? I'm going to give you myself or my time, my energy, my devotion in return for your provision, your care, your love, assurance of salvation? Or do you come to God with your hands empty? You know what this one the one thing this man lacked when Jesus said this you lack one thing the thing that he lacked was empty hands Jesus looked around at verse 23 and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God And the disciples were amazed at his words But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is, not just for rich people, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Have you ever had somebody buy you a meal that you didn't expect? Particularly if it's a stranger and you wonder like... What's the angle they have for me? Or that humble kind of feeling where you're wondering, like, why did they buy it, this meal for me? Did they buy it because they think I can't afford it? I can't afford it? I want them to know I can't afford it? Uh, or did they buy it for me because out of some kind of pity or, 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 or whatever? And we say, like, I'll get you next time. I'll get the tip. Like, we try to find some way that I don't, I don't feel like I owe you as much. Somebody ever had somebody do something nice for you? Maybe it's bigger than buying you a meal. And you feel like, man, I gotta, I gotta somehow like do something back so I'm not in debt to you. It's because we never want to feel indebted. We never want to feel that we came to a relationship empty-handed. So Jesus responds to this man, you have to sell all that you have and come follow me because you lack one thing. The man gets disheartened. And he went away. For he had great possessions. Let's look at another story right before this of a different way that Jesus responded to people. In verse 13. And they were bringing children, that's the crowd, were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was angry and said to them, you know, you can tell a lot about somebody what they get indignant over, what they get angry over. So we see this is very close to his heart. He was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, what point is he he making here? Well, number one, I mean, we can see very obviously that Jesus loves children. That's why we put a lot of time and energy into our doxa kids and the nursery back in the back. 
But we also see that then he takes it like kind of a, a larger picture and he says in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what does that mean? How do we receive the kingdom of God like a child? What, is, what does that mean? Well, I think most of us instantly we kind of think about a child's innocence or a child's um, uh, uh, spontaneity, a, a child's uh, uh, purity, like we think of a child as pure, innocent, and, and like just the spontaneous kind of love. And is it is there something special about a love of a child? You know, I mean, uh, I experienced this for the, the first time as a as a parent. We had Sophia. You know, before that I was God and really pay attention to, to babies and, and whatnot and kids. And but when we had we had Sophia and we're walking around like stores and restaurants. Like strangers would talk to us. Strangers would talk to Sophia. She was a little infant, like adult. Grown, masculine, large men would like make baby sounds to her and like, oh, I got, hey little girl, how are you? And they want to touch her and pinch her cheeks and there's, there's just something about the kind of the, the love of a child to, to get the response from a child back to you. Isn't something, but, but what is he saying? Is he saying that we need to be innocent like a child? Because really that's a command that none of us can follow. None of us can be innocent like a child again. Is it you have to be kind of as pure as a child? Because you can never get that back again. Is that what he's saying? I think what he's saying is, see, because in, in any society really, but particularly in this society, women, those who were sick, and children were less valuable than men. And children in particular, because they're little and helpless. They have no way to fend for themselves. If you leave an infant, that, when it says that they were bringing the children to him, that, that word in the Greek there is little children. They're babies. They're infants. They're bringing the little tiny babies. They're totally helpless to him. You know why Jesus said you have to receive the kingdom of God like them? Because children come with empty hands. They have no idea that they need to offer you back something in return. When they wake up in the morning... They want breakfast. They want something to drink. That might land when he comes downstairs at 6.30 every morning. The first thing he says is, Daddy, can I watch some TV? Then he says, can I have a fwink? That's a drink. Can I have a fwink? And I, can I have something to eat, please? He, he has no idea that he needs to do anything in return. He's just, give me food, please. Give me drink. I need, I need. He comes with totally empty hands. What do you bring to God? Do you come with empty hands? Saying, God, unless you fill them, I have nothing. I have nothing. The last story in this chapter, we won't go through it, is about a man who's blind. His name was Bartimaeus. Jesus responds differently to him than the ruler. It ends differently because he hears he's blind and he hears that Jesus is coming. And when Jesus is walking down the road, when Bartimaeus hears it, he starts to cry out and he's yelling. He says, I don't, want to, I don't want to get it wrong, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And so said, those are around him, they couldn't hear, it was too loud, and they rebuked him. They said, be quiet, be quiet. The important teacher is coming by. And he says that he yelled out all the more, all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And all the more they're saying, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And he's just, all he knows is that he has a need. He's not saying, I'm going to bring something to the table. He's not saying, I've been good all my life. He's just coming with totally empty hands saying, I have a need. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears him. He comes over to him and he heals him. And Bartimaeus comes and follows him because he came with empty hands. He didn't come with agenda. He didn't come with a barter. He didn't come with a plan. He didn't come and say, God, I'll pray this much if you'll do this for me. I'll, I'll, I'll give myself to you if you'll do this for me. He said, I come with empty hands. I just recognize you are Jesus. You are the Lord. I have much need. I have nothing to fill. I have empty hands. Fill them. In fact, in verse 42, Jesus was talking to his disciples. He says, and Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. This is the money verse. Here's the payoff. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you approach Jesus as a servant? Waiting on him, doing something for him? Or are you willing to come to Jesus with empty hands and let him serve you? Let him fill your hands because only empty hands can be filled. He gave his life as a ransom. That word in the Greek there was the same word they used for, a, for bail bond, to, to bail you out of jail. Jesus came, you were a prisoner of war, and Jesus came to serve you. When you brought nothing to the table, when you were an enemy of his, when you were far away from him, when you had no desire for him, even before you were born, he came to pay a ransom for you. The substitutionary death on the cross that you could not pay. A perfect life that you could not lead. A substitutionary death that you could not die. And a resurrection that you could not accomplish. To fill your hands. But you can't receive it if your hands are full. I don't know if any of you guys grew up in church or in the South. Um, but... Uh, I learned pretty early that if you, uh, a big thing in churches and uh, in my family growing up was potlucks. Potlucks. And a potluck is different than like, like other kind of meals where you feed a lot of people where you know there's like a meat or two meats, a two, you know, three or four sides and there's going to be a bread or maybe a salad. Like, you know, something mixed in there, but you kind of know where you're going to get. A potluck, everybody brings something. There could be 50 pots on on the table 
And people just, just run up there. They want to be first in line because they're hungry. But I learned pretty early that what you got to do is you got you to scope out. There might be a couple of different serving lines. You got to scope out what line do I want to be at. You got to kind of pay attention to people coming through first and see, hey, that looks good. That looks good. Because what happens is people start early in the line. They fill up their plate. They get to the end of the table. Maybe the best stuff might be down there. They don't have room on their plate left. You got to have room on your plate when you get to the end of the line. You got to have room. Because you only those, you know how there's those compartments when you go to meals like that? Because only if you have an empty compartment can you put the food that's really good in there. Only empty hands can be filled. So as we come this morning to the table, I want you guys to come with empty hands. I want you to think about what kind of deals that you're trying to keep with God. Times and questions that you've asked to him. What do you want from me? Because you're thinking that I have to come and give him something. I have to put something on the table in order to get something back from him. My life isn't going the way I want it to. And so I have to figure out what the magic formula is so that he'll give me what I need or what I want. Instead of coming to him with totally empty hands. Totally helpless. That's why as Christians sometimes you'll see people pray with their arms out, hands outstretched like this, or maybe even sing or pray with their arms up in the air, it's saying, I'm coming to you with empty hands, with reckless abandon, like a child. You could do with me as you see fit, but I'm just crying out like the blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.